This is Live Well Talk on Busting Common COVID-19 Myths. I'm Dr. Dustin Arnold, Chief Medical Officer at Union Point Health St. Luke's Hospital, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. You cannot turn on your TV or look at your phone without seeing some sort of headlines about the pandemic and COVID-19. Whether it's new variants, whether it's mask or not mask, uh, vaccine hesitancy, uh, and and even, even to the point of COVID-19 denial that it really is real, uh, which is mind-boggling. But uh, in, in any case, we thought it'd be nice to have a podcast where we looked at some of these myths uh, we, and, and, and analyzed them to see because there may be an element of truth, it may be all mass hysteria. And to join me today is Vice President Medical Director of Union Point Clinic, Cedar Rapids, Dr. Evan Deal. We're going to break down some of the common myths and uh, take a look at uh, why these things are developed and why they're persistent. Dr. Deal, welcome back to the podcast. I think you've been on before. No, it's first time, Dr. Arnold. Really? Thanks. Yeah. First time with the invite. I appreciate it. It's first time but, on but, but you do listen on a regular basis, correct? Absolutely. Long time listener, first time being on the show. First time, long time listener, first time guest. Thanks for well, having me. You know, Evan, as you and I have talked before, that, and I've talked to other people, you know, this pandemic arrived in a, in a campaign year, presidential campaign. During campaigns, everything is politicized. That is historically what happens. Um, but it, it's ten, the, the politicization, the polarization, the, the black and white of an issue that's incredibly gray ha, has been persistent to, to the disadvantage, I think, of the scientific community on some level as far as building uh, trust. Uh, and I think Americans in general are ruggedly independent when they need to be, and that's, that's why they're Americans. But uh, it certainly has complicated issues. So I kind of want to go through kind of some of the common things that we hear and just where are we at and maybe what was the nidus or how did this start? Uh, and the first one that I wanted to ask you about was airborne versus non-airborne transmission, as well as asymptomatic transmission. Sure. Um, you know, I can remember, I was just reviewing some stuff for this podcast that when the WHO said that it's not person-to-person transmission, Mm-hmm. Um, and now we know that's to be patently false. Not that they were misleading people. I just think don't think they knew. So, what is is COVID nineteen airborne? Yeah, I, I think there's there's evidence that it, you know scientifically that it that it can be uh, that it is. I think the question we don't know is like is that a regular part of how people are getting it? You know, and so I always remember like when they closed down the playgrounds and talked about like disinfecting surfaces and things like that. And I always just found that shocking to think like, I don't I don't think we're getting the virus from, you know, touching some plastic from somewhere else. I think right. most yeah. of us in the medical community are aware how influenza spreads. Like we get the idea of droplet spread, of sneezing, and and that most of the evidence suggests that people are getting it from close contacts, you know, people breathing and coughing and sneezing by them. So there's gonna be these like you know, scientific studies that talk about transmission and and ways that it's transmitted. But I think the bigger question is, how is it most commonly spread? You know, how do we how do we stop the biggest chunk of that? And I I do think that comes back to the common sense there of some masking of covering your cough, you know, cover your cough and your mouth when you're sneezing and washing your hands. And I think that's the biggest part of it. I I think you're right. I mean, I think from whether or not it's airborne, first of all, measles is known to be airborne. Yeah, very, very, with a very high RO rate, meaning for every case of measles, there's, it, it may be close to 10 other cases start. I mean, that's how airborne measles is. But, you know, they've never cultured 
if that's the right term, because we don't really think of culture when we talk about viruses, but have they, they've never cultured uh, measles out of the air. Mm -hmm. uh, it's done by looking at, well, how does it present and how does it transmit? And I think if you look at a couple of things that to me, I think it's pretty definitive that it, it probably is airborne. And that is the USS Roosevelt and other cruise ships, they had people that had no contact with each other, didn't mm -hmm. touch the same things, were not in that, but they shared the same air for a period of time. And we had transmission, you mm -hmm. know, and particularly in the US Roosevelt, they could by duty assignments and logs, they know where people were, you know, so they could say, okay, this person never came in contact with these people and they got it. Yeah. And the other is we know that outside events are pretty safe. It's indoor events without ventilation being dangerous and indoor events with poor ventilation are dangerous. So, I, I mean, I, I think I really think it's put to rest, but there's still a lot of controversy. There's still people who don't believe it's airborne. But you're actually yeah. right. You started the, the fomite or the touching surfaces. That was huge. Everybody's wiping down everything. And it's probably not transmitted like that way. Right. I mean, I know I'm not a... a... This is one of those do what we say, not what we do sort of things that not, none of us are perfect with masking. And I think I, I try to as much as possible in close contact with people to put on a mask. Um, but you always know there's people that have different uh, levels of caution than you. And I've wondered when I'm outside walking my dog, you know, in the middle of Iowa, uh, not close to people that, that I presume that is being safe. And you walk by someone briefly on the sidewalk who has an N95 on. Yeah. And you realize like, oh, my goodness, like maybe they think I don't believe in masks like they're they're so far on that other spectrum. So it's just interesting, you know, the wide degree of, of uh, you know, how serious people take that. I, I think you can't deny the the elephant and the donkey in the room to make a political uh, uh, pun uh, that it it kind of depends where you're falling as far as what what you believe in. And I, I wholeheartedly believe, particularly with the, vac the vac vaccine passports, that if it was reversed, the people that are for it would be against it, and the people that are against it would be for it. And there's, on on certain level, there's no, just no doubt in my mind uh, mm -hmm. that that would be true. Um, I, I remember learning this uh, when we went to Italy, that the term passport actually comes from the plague, that you had a pass to get through the port to enter these walled cities. So you had to in some way prove that you didn't weren't active with the plague so that's kind of interesting that when we when we think about that it, it always surprised me the asymptomatic transmission and i, I want to hear your take on you know people say well respiratory viruses don't transmit asymptomatically but there's a lot of viruses that transmit asymptomatically you do you shed the virus before you're um infected I yeah mean, i mean that's that's actually Absolutely. really common. And and think of how frequently, you know, we all get a little cough or cold or sniffles that, you know, you just have for a day. It could be allergies right. and, and we just don't know. Um, and I think that comes back to a lot of these recommendations that like if there's any question, we don't know. Like it's just let's set a low bar for, you know, trying to avoid uh, populated places and, and wear a mask. And, you know, there's plenty of times I woke up with a, a something that I usually would call allergies um, that, you know, the last two years has put a great deal of, uh, you know, put a little bit more stress on that. Like, oh my goodness, maybe this is COVID. So, so we don't know. I think it happens a lot before the last two years with other viruses uh, in, in cold season. And, um, you know, what is that level of uh, having symptoms? Is it just a little scratchy throat or are we talking about a full blown, full blown fever? 
Well, and I, here's another thing. I mean, you'll appreciate this as a physician. We're all day long asking patients, when did the symptoms start? What made them better? What made them worse? We're taking a history because the history is 99% of medicine, getting the narrative from the patient. And then 1% is confirming that narrative on physical exam, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how have you ever been a patient as a physician and you're a patient and they start asking you those questions? You realize what a horrible historian you are. They're like, well, when did yeah, this start? And you're yeah. kind of like, we don't know. Uh, I don't know, you know. Right. And, you know, the, the nurse asks you, and you say, well, it started a week ago. And then you sit there for a while, and you go, oh, you know, really, what? boy, it did happen at that wet. So it's about two weeks ago, I guess. Doctor comes in, and now it's two weeks. Right. You know, and that happens all the time. It's happened to every clinician. Uh, but we, you, you realize patients are just not just patients, people are not reliable historians. Yeah, yep. it's really hard. And, and we don't know the difference between completely asymptomatic, just really mild symptoms. You know, I knew someone that just had a headache and didn't feel that good for a day and, and ended up testing positive for COVID. So was that COVID? Was it asymptomatic? Was it something else? We just won't know. In a related, uh, as far as asymptomatic symptoms and, and, and contact, you know, this, we could do a whole nother podcast about just the stress in society prior to the pandemic. I mean, I, I think it's safe to say this now, I, I wouldn't have said it back then, but I did feel it, that there was kind of a sort of enthusiasm to cancel meetings and change your schedule because it, it was so stressful prior to the pandemic. It, it kind of was a stress relief and that's probably hard to explain. Yeah. But but I felt that not just in the art industry, not just in medicine, but just in everyone's industry, that it was that, that early on that first week or so was like just, although it was scary, it was also kind of break from just the mundane and the stress of what we do every day. Yeah, that's it's really, really interesting. Made, it's, it's really made me rethink that, well, okay, is it was it important to have these meetings on a regular basis when we went without them and the world didn't end? Right. Um, and, and so I've tried to look at my life a little bit as far as what brings value to things. And 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 I think I think that the pandemic's made me look at it. It's kind of just a related topic, but not. Unrelated. I can imagine the number of, you know, books that will be written about these few years. I mean, there's so many societal things to study. And and that first one you mentioned is like, yeah, we all kind of came together that late winter and spring. And there was a lot of, um, you know, um, just us and we thinking about, you know, even the country or the world, the humanity as a whole, we were going to get together and fight this thing. Um, and even the support that we got for as healthcare workers, I mean, that was amazing. And for most people, it's still going on. But I think what we're just seeing now is just a lot of real burnout. People are just really, really tired of still talking about it. And so some of that, some of that grace that we gave each other um, has, has worn off a little bit. Well, we, we talked yesterday on the podcast, the weekly update, and I, I've come to this observation. I, I want to get your opinion on this. This is kind of off topic, but it is. So. The communities that were vaccinated at a low rate had this spike of Delta almost overwhelmed, sending us patients from Missouri, from St. Louis, because they had no critical care beds. I mean, absolutely five alarm, DEFCON five crisis, right? But it lasted for a brief period of time. And now it's kind of come back to the, in these communities like they, what's COVID? They're back to normal. Where here in Cedar Rapids, in Lynn County, we have like a 65% and climbing vaccination rate. Uh, our own employees, that's 4,000 or so. I think we're in the, almost the 90s percent, mm -hmm. you know. And so I think with the communities that have a high vaccination rate, the Delta moves through slower. 
So you end up rather than being overwhelmed with 120 really sick people in the hospital at one time when you're just about ready at your breaking point, and then it drops. That it's actually harder to do this sort of prolonged plateau of 25 plus or minus two for weeks on end, because it's hard to continue to adrenalize the situation over a sustained period of time. Now, I'm not. This is just my observation. I'm not saying that the vaccine, I'm still recommending the vaccine. That's that's good because less people die. Um, but it, it, I, I think I think you're right. I think when we look back at this, you're going to we're going to learn some things about ourselves and all, as well as learn some things about um, just stress and, and dealing. Yeah, I think, you know, things could have been worse that first wave. And there were some people that were screaming like, you know, hey, let's just get this over. We'll all get it you will all get immune to it and uh the initial attempts were about like flattening that curve right flatten the curve so that we don't run out of ventilators so we don't run out of hospital beds and and for the most part we were successful with that through a lot of the country um you're right that you know we might have a more of a slow burn ongoing but i guess the 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 benefit of that hopefully would be that fewer people should die you know, we should uh, be able to maintain our supplies. I mean, think about back last year, we didn't literally didn't have surgical masks for, right. for a while. And, and we're very much in a different place, I think, because of our efforts um, to conserve those things and supply chain efforts. So there's benefits there. You know, we've gotten more comfortable with caring for some of these patients. You know, when we show up to work each day uh, as a, I'm a hospitalist at St. Luke's and, uh, you know, I think it's a little bit more um everyday practice now that we have a few patients with covid we kind of know what the standard care is so you know you lose a little bit of that fear a little bit of excitement and i think that's that's mostly a good thing in medicine that we don't want to be dealing with an unknown and be unprepared but you're right it does seem like you know we're going to have a bit of this slow burn for a while still yeah um you're absolutely right i'm not saying it's a good or bad i'm just saying that that's i think that's why some of the that's why it's so hard at times to have that slow plateau or persistent plateau is what I'm calling it. Cause you end up with pandemic fatigue and yeah. I've done a couple interviews, uh, national public radio, some local television, uh, saying that you don't call it burnout. Okay. Cause burnout is that the things that you've always done no longer provide emotional value to you and you're burned out. Right. Mm-hmm. Sure. This is something totally different. I mean, this isn't yeah. burnout. This is pandemic fatigue. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've even heard people call it empathy fatigue. I don't know if I like that term because it kind of has a slight negative connotation, like you you, you you no longer have the ability to be empathetic, which I, there is probably such thing as empathy fatigue, but I, I don't really like to use that term. But um, it, 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 as you said right before the podcast, it's going to be interesting to to look back and say and learn from everything because it's so hard to study something when you're part of the study yeah. because you have observational bias. And I can't. Uh, well, for a lot of reasons, I can't wait till we get through this, but it's going to be interesting to look back on this. For sure. Yep. Yeah. Effectiveness, a mask, you know, you mentioned it, mask, um, at the end of the day, they don't hurt. Mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest thing, especially when we're talking about public policy. Like, you know, yeah, there's not uh, research behind like a community, um, you know, recommendation for everyone to wear a mask in a restaurant or not, but if at the end of the day they don't hurt, you know, I think that's what a lot of thought comes from that. Like, if, if I don't know for sure if I'm going to spread it and there's a chance that wearing a mask might help reduce it. It's something that I should be able to do, I think, as a member of a, of a community, as a citizen to help protect others. 
Um, I do think we get spent a little bit too much time on the thought that the masks are, are helping us. I mean, there there likely is some benefit there, but really I think of wearing a mask is about not spreading my potential viral load to others. And uh, there might be settings, even with cloth masks or things like that, where they could be less efficacious. But I think if there's a chance at help and they're not causing me harm, it's a it's a minor annoyance at times. Uh, it's a reasonable thing to do until we're really past the worst of this. Well, you you know, you I've been very vocal that I get frustrated because masks are they should be put on correctly, not touched and worn once. You mm -hmm. know, anything beyond that, I think it loses the 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 value, the benefit. But it doesn't never become a a, a negative. I don't think it really. You yeah. know, I mean, I still think it, people say, well, there's no evidence that masks work, and it's kind of the analogy of there's no evidence that a study placebo controlled blinded that jumping out of a, an airplane with or without a parachute which group does better right right because you, why would you study that because it's obvious to me this would be much more controversial if it was a expensive dangerous invasive therapy you know something like that where it could potentially do harm and i i really don't see any reason to think that wearing a mask could could cause harm to to the the mask wearer although wearing a mask by yourself driving a car is still a little weird to me i will give you that i've had some yeah, yeah some strange looks at yeah. <laughs> um the uh back to the mask and just in general you know i've been kind of i've been disappointed in the united states that we haven't done a better job of answering some of these fundamental questions some of them you and i are talking about right now antibody testing uh, effective public health measures. You know, I mean, we're the United States. We should be conducting these studies when we're getting the studies out of Thailand and uh, Hong Kong. Not that the study is inferior. It's just I, I'm a little disappointed that our public health apparatus hasn't made a bigger, better effort to study some of these things transparently. Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's just been such a moving target. You've said this before. You know, like science isn't is about the pursuit of knowledge, right? And it, I think recommendations keep changing as we get more information and with the, the mask guidance initially all the way back there was we were we were concerned that we weren't going to have masks in the hospital. I mean, that, and that was a big part of that recommendation of saying that, no, you don't need to wear one out in the community because we need them in the hospital. Well, once that barrier went away, then, you know, then they, I think, could get a little bit more uh, generous with with those guidelines. But now people might look back on that and say, like, see, you 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 changed your tune here. Um, first, you told us not to wear it. Now you're telling us to wear one. I think that's one reason why, um, you know, people started to lose a little trust. Ivermectin. This this has come out and I've, I've told you that I, I don't treat river blindness. So Ivermectin is not a drug that I would think of. Mm -hmm. And in preparation in this podcast, you and I had a conversation last week talking about what, what we're going to talk about and some of the questions that we need to answer. You know, I, I, I mentioned to you, like colchicine, uh, which is an old drug, has been tried just about on every disease. I, I've even seen that colchicine might help COVID, you know, uh, which is a gout medication has has it inhibit, inhibits the movement of white blood cells. So it reduces inflammation, which is it's, it's, a, it's a novel mechanism. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why. But there's also the statins. I just saw an article come by today. Statins. Uh, uh, have an influence on uh, it was a non-cardiac illness you know I mean so it just it's never ending where they're trying to find new indications for an older drug right and do you know where, where did this ivermectin come from why would even it think 
I mean, am I a bad doctor if you walk in my office with a viral illness and I said, I'm going to give you something for river blindness? That yeah, I, did I, just one, I think, yeah, I, th I think it would be a, bit, a bad doctor. But where did this come from? I think you and I know that like these studies are going on all the time for for lots of things, right? And I don't think there's ever been this level of public scrutiny on primary literature you know before so like as soon as a, a new study comes out with a new medicine they're trying hey, i mean this was a new disease people were gonna they were gonna throw the kitchen sink at it and try to find something new and that's the right thing to do right like as scientists and physicians like to try and fight a new disease we need to try and find a new cure so that's the right thing to do um we all were initially on board with some evidence that hydroxychloroquine or plaquenil was effective. You know, back in that initial spring, we started to use it for a short while. There were recommendations to do so. Um, that quickly became apparent that we were causing more harm than good, you know, as patients were developing issues with cardiac arrhythmias, et cetera. And so we changed practice as more evidence became apparent and, uh, and recommendations came out. I'll tell you this, like I'm a practicing physician in the mindset that the vast majority of what I do with patients should be should be pretty well recommended by our national bodies, you know, the um, for internal medicine or family practice or hospital medicine. And right now it's very clear that they're not recommending the use of, of ivermectin based off the congregate analysis of all these studies. Uh, I think that for myself as a practicing physician, uh, I do not see it as part of my regular duty to be going through primary literature all the time and trying what's new, um, you know, or finding the new hottest thing. I, I think it is appropriate the way our healthcare system set up to let the process work and let peer review studies be peer reviewed, go to the journals and then have consensus recommendations by those by those bodies. And um, and we haven't got there with with uh, specifically with ivermectin, you know, we're being recommended that it is not appropriate, that it's causing more harm than good. And perhaps it's more of a controversial thing because it is available over the counter, you know, and that, um, you know, that patients are able to get it in other places. You know, they're not able to get some of these other prescription meds that have been um, experimental therapies, you know. One that we seem to have stuck to in the hospital for hospitalized patients is knowing that a steroid dexamethasone has shown some benefit. Um, but again, we're talking about pretty limited benefit about like reducing the time uh, and severity of symptoms. It's not a cure. And so um, the biggest thing I take away with the controversy of ivermectin is that we've still lost some of that patient physician provider trust. Like we, everything we do is, is based around that. And you have to understand as a patient that like your provider wants you to get better. If there's something there that we could use to make you get better, we'd do anything to, to get that to you safety, uh, safely. But you mentioned it before, uh, at first do no harm. We have to wait till we have evidence and we know that we're not gonna give you something that's gonna cause harm. And um, no one's withholding any medicines from patients, you know, because of government conspiracies or, you know, anything like that. We are we are following the, the scientific recommendations and guidelines and want to get you the best treatment as soon as possible. Um, that's that's my biggest takeaway from it. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm a little disappointed that I, I think if I think if 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 
the boards of medicine and the media would have just said, yeah, if, if you and your doctor want to try ivermectin, that's you and your doctor's decision, you know, and there's no evidence. It's a, lot, it's a tremendous amount of noise. But I keep right under the glass here at my desk that evidence, studies refuted over time, randomized controlled trials, 32% of them are refuted over time. Non-randomized controlled trials, 83%. Mm-hmm. And I keep that on my desk just to remind me that, you know, what I'm doing today may really not be a benefit, uh, but it sure as hell better not be of harm. Yeah. You know, no, and absolutely. I think I think that's the way you go into these conversations with a patient that what what is a benefit, but what, what let's make sure it doesn't harm you. Um, right. Plaquenil is a, is, is a safe drug when it's used appropriately. And if you're not using all the time, um, then you need to be careful that. But then also you run into an issue, and we did this with Plaquenil back then. We looked at down on the stairs in the pharmacy, looked at our chronic Plaquenil prescriptions, and we set three months aside uh, of Plaquenil mm-hmm. for those patients, right? Because we were afraid that we could have a run on the pharmacy. Mm-hmm. And then these people that need it for their lupus, that need it for their rheumatoid arthritis, it wouldn't be there. Right. So that, right. that, was, that, was, that was a decision that we made that the patients that – so. Y- Sometimes if something might be of a benefit, but if you're taken away from another patient that it's proven to be right. a benefit, proven to modify their disease, then that, that causes harm too. Right. I get concerned specifically with the ivermectin talk that the more we talk about it, do we, you know, increase this, um, this controversy that amongst medical professionals, I, I don't really think is there. I don't think it's controversial right now um amongst you know physicians and providers that the evidence is not there that it's it it doesn't help and it could cause harm so to me yeah, that's I, think, not I think it, you know i can i know you have a lot of interaction with the outpatient doctors more so than me just in your position but i would confidently say our medical staff is not walking around looking for right. ivermectin you know right. because it's it's the data's a lot of noise right. and you know, it, it's just, it, the miami trial beta blockers and heart attacks that took 18 years before the miami trial was completed and it became standard practice because it kept being retested that truth kept being re-looked at because we didn't want to harm people and it's really hard just to throw something out there that can potentially harm so i'd encourage people to like let's move on we're going to keep looking at the data and studying drugs you know and therapies as we can but i don't think this is a controversial topic on that standpoint and um you know, don't get medicines from from animal pharmaceutical companies. I, I think that's a pretty clear-cut recommendation. Unless you're an animal. Unless you're an animal. Think about those animals. They need yes. the, the medicine, too. Yeah, yeah that's uh, that, more to come on that as far as I think that hopefully it, it, that will be cleared up someday and definitively answered, but it, it may not be. You know, it may be one of those things. While we're talking about treatments that kind of came out of nowhere, um, vitamin D comes up a lot mm-hmm. and I'm going to tell you a story that I think is really important. So, I mean, vitamin D is just not with the pandemic. I mean, it's been, right. it's, it's comes up all the time. And so there's a guy named Doc Carney. He was an, uh, he was African-American doctor and he practiced in Brooklyn, Iowa. And he's my patient when I was in Grinnell, we became very good friends and watched a lot of Iowa basketball together with him. And, and I would see some of his patients and they say, oh, I just need to get a carny cocktail and I'll feel better. I used to go, what the hell is a carny cocktail? So one time we're watching an Iowa game, I go, hey, doc, the, my patients, they always say they need a carny cocktail. What, what is that? 
And what he would do is he, he said, look, this is a true story. He said, look, patients get relative vitamin D depleted. And that's their cabin fever. It's not cabin fever. It's a vitamin. It's a sunshine vitamin deficiency that will go away once the sun comes out. Hmm. But what he would do is he would give them B12 and a steroid injection, you know, in middle of February. They would feel great, he says. And then about the time that that steroid wears off, they got their vitamin D levels up uh, and, and, and the sunshine came out and the, the con- carny cocktail worked. And I was like, you know, that's crazy. But then over the years, 25 years later, I'm like, yeah, that, that does kind of make sense. You know what I mean? So he's kind of ahead of his time saying there's this cyclic phenomenon with vitamin D that if you test patients at the right time, they are going to be low. Yeah. And, yeah. and they might not feel, sometimes I think some of this kind of achy and stiff feelings that people have like in February and they attribute it to, you know, it's, it's spring fever, cabin fever. I need to get outside. I think it's a relative vitamin D deficiency. And then they sure. get it replaced and they feel better. And so, so I, I'm not so sure that, you know, this vitamin D is more of a innocent bystander in a way, uh, or coincidental. Yeah. I'll date myself a little bit. Uh, I've only been out of practice for, or out of residency for, uh, seven or eight years. But when I was in residency, uh, vitamin D, I think became really, really, um, uh, in vogue to check that for inpatients, uh, yeah. a lot in patients and, uh, specifically in the nephrology community, it seemed like every time I worked with a nephrologist, you know, we'd admit someone for sepsis or, or a- pneumonia, anything. And they'd say like, well, what's your vitamin D level? And so it became very clear that sick patients had really low rates. A lot of them had low levels of vitamin D. I, I don't think what we know though, is that if you artificially boost that up, does it change their outcome? And I think there has been some evidence in, in septic patients in the ICU, um, and that's where the idea for treating COVID, you know, with vitamin D came from, because a lot of them meet criteria for sepsis. Um, but again, yeah, like if you check all these patients, a lot of them are going to have low vitamin D levels. But there's the we wonder like what's a normal vitamin D level? It's not really well established depending on where you live, your race, your skin color, things like that, and then are we going to change outcomes by artificially boosting that level up? And to me, that's unclear. Um, you know, it's generally a benign treatment, but it is a fat soluble vitamin. In theory, we could overdose someone with vitamin D and cause a problem. I don't think that happens very often, but um, that's probably one reason why it's just, it's kind of added on for some people's therapy, especially if they're severely ill in the hospital. Because again, we don't have a cure for for COVID-19 right now. And so it's thought that if something might help a little bit and not harmful, that that's why. But I think that comes back from, from a lot of the work around sepsis. Um, you know, it's not overly impressive that it's helpful. And, uh, you know, it's going to take more time to, to know if it really has an effect. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, you, you take a patient that's been in a nursing home yeah. for a couple of years. How, how right. often do they out in the sun? Exactly. And you check it and they have a low vitamin D level. Um, exactly. I, I mean, I, when I take care of these patients, I do give them kind of what I call a metabolic resuscitation, you know, uh, folate, thiamine, because these things can be depleted, the water soluble, they'll be peed out, but you're absolutely right. The, the, you can get in trouble with the vitamin, fat soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K. Um, and the, I think one of the issues that I always worry about is patients overtaking vitamin D, which probably won't get them in a lot of trouble, particularly, if, but if that's along with vitamin A, 
The yeah. diet can be really toxic. That can cause liver failure and you can die. Yeah. From five yeah. Days. And, and again, most of the time supplementing someone that has a low level with, you know, a normal supplement dose is not going to overdose them, especially in a controlled setting. But is it going to change their outcome? I think that we don't really know. You know, I mean, speaking of over time, when I was a senior resident in the early 90s, my, pre- my grand rounds was on mineral corticoids and sepsis. Mm-hmm. Okay. And at that time, it was recommended, you know, thought yeah. it benefit. And that has freaking gone back and forth <laughs> over the years that, you know, I think if, I think as doctors, you eventually become in vogue if you just keep doing the same thing you did 20 years ago. You know, yep. the pendulum comes back like, wow, he's really cutting edge. Nah, he's actually been doing that for 20 years. Um, so, I mean, that's not even a controversy that's settled right. uh, over time. And, and, and that just, that just uh, reassures us that, you know, science is the search for the truth, not finding the truth. Um, I'd like to wrap up talking about the vaccines and really get into, I, I really want to talk about uh, some of the unusual things that people mention. Infertility, it alters my DNA. Um, I think the rare thrombotic events with the J&J vaccine, I think the myocarditis, pericarditis in young people is real. Mm-hmm. It's not a contraindication uh, for that, but it, but it, but it, there is an association and it's small, but, mm-hmm. but, but I think it's real, particularly young male adolescents with the myocarditis, pericarditis. So what, what, what's your been thoughts on that? These, some of these things that are said. Well, I, I'd want to start with, you know, the, the vaccine adverse information reporting system, the VAERS yeah. system. And I think that's where a lot of this came from. And, and we've tried to clarify it, uh, even had specific questions, but again, that, that system is there to capture everything. So, you know, if you, um get a, anything you know the next day if you stub your toe the day after getting a vaccine VARES would want to know about it you know that you you had some physical ailment um right after getting the vaccine they want to capture everything um to make sure we're being as sensitive as possible and casting a wide net um so that is why you know deaths uh infections all these sorts of things do get uh, cataloged in the VAERS system after getting the COVID vaccine. But to this date, there's been none of those things have been shown to have any real cause and effect uh, or statistical significance. And so, um, again, we're, we're catching a lot of people die every day uh, in this country, you know, for all these reasons. All those will be cataloged in the VAR system if they had got the COVID vaccine, you know, shortly before. If they volunteered for it, VAERS is the, you know, VAERS stands for Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. But right. it's so if it was reported. And, 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 right. And I'm going to be completely honest with listeners and with you. I didn't even know VAERS existed until the pandemic because I just ordered the vaccine that people needed. You know, I mean, right. I support vaccines. Vaccines are are in a lot of ways have just, if you think about it, vaccines have saved more people than vaccines and a bar of soap are probably the two things that have saved more people in the history of mankind than anything else that we do. And by bar of soap, I mean, good hygiene, you know, not drinking contaminated water, et cetera. But I didn't even know fairs existed. And And so, so now we have this heightened, um, you know, just societal awareness of that system and a lot of people reading it and reading the logs and so, you know, to find all these adverse reported events, but in reality, you know, none of them have been really linked as a, as a cause uh, or a cause and effect from the COVID vaccine. So I think that's the biggest part of it. Um, you know, anytime you do something to millions of people, you know, a point, if there's a point zero 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 one chance that 
you could get a rash or you could have a thrombotic event, something like that. That's an incredibly small chance. But if yes, if you do it to millions of people, you'll see a handful of those cases. Yeah, and I think that's um, that is OK to admit that there are those risks, very, very small risks. But we know that the risks of not getting vaccinated, I think, are much higher. So, I mean, that's just comes back to the pros and cons, the safety profile of the vaccine. And uh, it also speaks to how, you know, how safe does this vaccine have to be to be authorized? Very safe, you know, because you're going to do it to millions of people. And so we have to feel extremely confident that it's not going to cause a significant side effect, you know, because a 1% chance, if you got uh, a thrombotic event in 1% in of people that had the vaccine, that'd be an incredibly high number of side effects, you know, and it probably wouldn't be safe enough to give to the public. So, you know, I'm incredibly yeah, I, confident. I think, you know, I, I think we're approaching 7 billion doses. Yeah. If, you know, yeah. and, you know, so even if you have, you know, a million adverse reactions, that's still a small percentage. Right. Incredibly, yeah. incredibly small. So I think um, that's important to know, um, you know, for the public, um, it comes back to that trust, too, that their physician and providers, they want what's best for them and that we that we feel really confident in the safety of these these vaccines. And so um, that's that's I think the biggest thing to take away from it. The the really you know, far out there uh, controversies or conspiracy theories. You know, I don't know how to speak to that, to that level of mistrust. That's something, um, you know, a larger societal issue. If people would believe that there's microchips going on or things like that. You know, I think that's kind of outside the realm of, of what we think of as as medicine or typical medical care. There's something there's something funky going on there, if that's what people are believing. But I think there's an extreme amount of evidence out there walking around with all of us that have been vaccinated, the millions and millions or billions of doses given, and knowing that the vast majority of us are are, are doing just fine. And yeah, another thing that I think on the vaccines, particularly messenger RNA, is that it doesn't get into our DNA. Right. It's, I think that's a lack of understanding of the cellular mechanics of messenger RNA, transfer RNA, et cetera. But, you know, that technology, I remember reading about that in college, 1990. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's it's really exciting. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it is. And it's been around for a while. So to say that messenger RNA technology is not safe, I, I, I don't know you can say that. You, you you could say it's maybe it's not effective in this case. Yeah. Um, but and maybe and I've said this to you and I've said it to on other podcasts. This may end up the vaccines may end up being a therapeutic and not necessarily a vaccine. Mm -hmm. You know, and you could we could someday have messenger RNA technology that a type one diabetic could have the beta isolate cells make insulin and they yeah. have to get a shot twice a year yep. with messenger RNA to tell those cells to make insulin yep. and cure diabetes. I mean, so there, might, the, the horizon of messenger RNA technology is just amazing. Yeah. And this this pandemic, you know, this uh, sped up process to now get billions of those doses out and people like might be, you know, a just a landmark study in the safety and efficacy of mRNA. You know, the fact that we've done it so much and the safety profile has been really, really remarkable, that's potentially really exciting for the future. I, I think I, th I think one issue that that I think I don't know if you can change it, but, you know, people work at the FDA and the CDC and then they go get a lucrative job with big pharma. And then you, then it calls in a question, what was their stewardship and uh, consumer protection sure. mentality? 
Yeah. You have big pharma, they come with a vaccine. The government says, okay, well, since it's hard to prove true, true, and related to some of these side effects, right, or not related, we're, no, we're going to make you immune from lawsuits related to the vaccine because we have to have vaccines. Like I said, bar soap and vaccines have saved more lives than anything. Yep. Well, then people look at that retrospectively and they say, okay, well, it's clear that they're in bed with big pharma and that's why they won't let me have vitamin D or azithromycin or hydroxychloroquine because they want, you know, the... the... Yep. Yeah, and that's just a result of we, we have a, we do have a huge problem with big pharma in this country, you know, the the fact that we advertise for prescription medications and things like that, I mean, on one hand is is kind of ridiculous. And so it is kind of speaking out of both sides of our mouths. And I think there is a big issue with the way pharmaceuticals are set up in this country. The money there, the cost to our patients is is unbelievable and not sustainable. But we also, in this light, you know, it, from a vaccine, are very much dependent on them uh, getting this vaccine up. And it's been uh, a lifesaver for many. I, I think also you can go back you can use that also to to address some of these controversies that unfortunately in 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 medicine big pharma profits motivate the company because they're a company right they're not out you know and nope. but you also can look at some of these other things about causing people these infertile and microchips you know what wh where's the money in that you know they don't right. do anything to, to for money so it, you can't have it both ways you can't criticize them for making a profit and then accuse them of doing something that would prevent them from make, making a profit. Yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a really good point. And, and, you know, the infertility thing is, um, you know, it, it's understandable that people at this stage in their life are just really, really cautious. And they're, you know, anyone who struggled with that is extremely distressed about making sure they're taking care of their body the right way. And um, I think you've talked about before, you know, it's about empathy. You know, a lot of those people are just trying to do what's best for them. Um, it's been really well established right now. You know, it doesn't cause infertility. And the other thing that it's becoming more and more apparent is how many more patients that are pregnant are having bad outcomes with COVID. And it just speaks back to it's, it's even more important that those patients get vaccinated because we have otherwise healthy you know, young women, potential mothers and such, and babies that, um, you know, that many have died from. So it's just. Well, and I, you you probably know this. I approve all monoclonal antibody orders just because of the shortage. So there's good stewardship there. So every single case I review, right? Yeah. And I can tell you, and again, this, the sample size here, small, less than 40, but all the pregnant women that we've given monoclonal antibodies to, they did not become hospitalized with COVID. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it, so, and I'm glad to see our local obstetricians. I, I love to see that their names on these orders because I do think it is preventing hospitalization. It, it's just human nature that, you know, you treat pregnant patients different because you have two patients. Right. And um, we were, we all, all had moms and we, you know, we, so we look at them differently and we do give them a little bit. So I, I don't see it as controversial uh, on that some agencies and some employers have said, you know, we're going to defer the vaccine during pregnancy. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's that's not sending a signal that they don't believe in vaccines. I don't think that's true at all. I think what it's saying is, you know, Dustin, you, like you said, 83% of non-randomized controlled trials go away over time. It's a pregnant mom. I just don't want to, I, I don't want to put them through this. Let's wait 90 days. I think that's completely fine. Right. Give them pause. Give them, you know, give them some grace to think it through. Uh, I think it's a very reasonable thing, but it's, it's just become very apparent how at, at risk that population is too. And I'm really excited to hear 
especially locally of our of obstetricians, uh, how supportive they've been. Um, and I think that the last couple, you know, the last month or two, it seems like they've even accelerated in that process and yeah, no, it's sure it, their patients are aware. It, so yep. really kudos I just to them. Two, two of them prior to this podcast orders came in. That's great. You no, know, so that, that really is good. Well, Evan, thanks for coming and joining me. And I think we'll have you back and maybe we'll talk about, uh, we'll see if there's some more data comes out about the Merck pill, yeah, which I think is really exciting. I mentioned yep. that yesterday in the podcast, so I think I'd like to have you come back and maybe we can talk about that, as well as uh, the Cleveland Clinic study on natural immunity, at least coming out saying, you know, maybe you should booster and give a third dose to other people, not mm-hmm. people that had it, because, you know, once again, good or bad, the United States has an overwhelmingly very efficient healthcare system. Uh, our rates of vaccinations exceed other countries by a lot. Uh, particularly developing countries, and yeah, and I think it's reasonable to look at these studies from a standpoint of stewardship. That should should this group of people get the vaccine, sure, or, or you know a second dose or third dose, or should we get to these people that they have no healthcare infrastructure? I right. think that's a, that's a good conversation to have. So yep. once again, this is Dr. Evan Deal, Vice President, Medical Director for Unity Point Clinic, Cedar Rapids. That's kind of like being principal of a homeschool, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> something like that. No, yeah. uh, no comment. No, no comment. All right. Thank you for listening to COVID-19 Update. For the latest on COVID-19 vaccine information and more, visit unipoint.org. Thank you for listening to Live Well Talk On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your family, friends, neighbors, strangers about our podcast. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, be well.